morning. Please turn with me to Genesis 25, verses 1 through 11. And I'll be reading from the ESV. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keterah. She bore him Zimron, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Letushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keterah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the fields of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the fields that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. This is the word of the Lord. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. We've been following the life of Abraham and Sarah. God changed them forever, and through them and their family and their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, redeemed all of humanity. So we, as Christians, consider ourselves, according to the New Testament, the spiritual descendants of Abraham, the man of faith. And Genesis tells us here in chapter 25 that he died in a good old age, a man, an old man full of years. Um, the, the double lifespan that these patriarchs lived, right? It says he died at the age of 175. His wife wasn't much younger, younger than that. Uh, you see in the family line, at least for a few generations, they lived really long. Scholars believe that it's, it's, it was written and meant to be taken literally. I actually don't have a problem with a lifespan that long. It, it appears for just this family of patriarchs to be, in the words of one Old Testament scholar, a special providence uh, that was given to them for a short period of time in history. And look, I look at it this way. If the creator designed biological life and sustains biological life, then the creator can slow down the aging process. Uh, so that what transpires uh, over about 80 years in your life, in my life, uh, m could have transpired in twice that length of time for Abraham and some of his family. But what's abundantly clear, right, don't get caught up on the 175-year-old life. What's abundantly clear in these words is that he died having lived a long life that the father of biblical faith died a long-lived life and died a blessed man. That in all of his ways, throughout his years, the Lord blessed him. And you see at the end of this passage that that blessing was transferred from Abraham to his son Isaac. 
that God was still going to work in Isaac as he had worked in Abraham. Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament apportions six verses. It's the hall of faith. You have all these different people mentioned from the Old Testament and how they lived by faith. And Moses, of all people, Moses is kind of the quintessential Old Testament prophet, right? And six verses in the hall of faith are, are apportioned for talking about Moses. Abraham's verses double that. Twelve verses in the hall of faith are apportioned to talk about Abraham. Because Abraham is, he's the classic man of faith in the Bible. Abraham's the prototype. Through Abraham's life, the story in the Bible really sets the tone and sets the, the vocabulary for talking about humanity's restoration. For talking about the good news, the message of the Bible, and God's salvation. It all really begins with Abraham. He's the prototype. And yet, as we see in Genesis chapter 25, what's abundantly clear is that the father of the faithful was still a fallen man with a tarnished record. Recent musical, Hamilton. Okay, How many people have, are familiar with the musical Hamilton? Have listened to it, maybe? I doubt anybody's been able to see it. It's like impossible to get in. But you've at least heard of it or, or listened to it. So, so you're, you're listening to Hamilton, and, and you become amazed and kind of in awe of, of this founding father of the country. You, you, you're in awe of the man's genius and, and of his enduring spirit and his tenacity and his resilience. And then you're deflated in the second act to discover uh, that in a moment of weakness, he was unfaithful to his wife. I one, one remember one of my children being absolutely devastated. Here's a hero, and then you see the hero fall, and you're just left deflated. How many times does that happen in our lives, right? If you live long enough, you discover that your heroes are broken people, right? And sometimes you wonder if there really is a hero at all. Christianity actually presents a realistic but optimistic response to this reality. Realistic and optimistic at the same time. And it's the big idea for today. God's grace covers the sins of our past and our present and even our future. If you walk with Jesus Christ, the God of the Bible, you begin to develop an honesty. You begin to cultivate an honesty about the past, a humility about the present in which you live, and hope in your future. Walking in faith with the God of the Bible as Abraham had been learning to do throughout most of his life. You cultivate honesty about the past, humility regarding the present, the circumstances in which you find yourself, and ultimately hope for your future. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Be, let's be honest about Abraham's past because the Bible clearly is. Genesis doesn't hide the fact that Abraham had concubines. Right? Apart from his wife, he has concubines. And you find it right here in his, gene, in his official record. Now, to have concubines, polygamy, bigamy, have, you know, one guy with many wives, it was a cultural norm in the ancient world. And the Bible doesn't hide that Abraham just assumed the cultural norm. Not only Hagar, now we've focused a lot, if you've been with us following, following Abraham's life through Genesis, you already know about Hagar. Um, what you don't know until this moment is about Keturah. And in verse 1, it says, Abraham took another wife. We'll just focus on that phrase for, for a little bit. 
Abraham took another wife. Now, almost all scholars agree that that should not necessarily be taken chronologically, as though Abraham got married again after Sarah had died. Because the original Hebrew expression can mean uh, a summary of past events. So when you read Abraham took another wife, a lot of scholars agree that that is summarizing a past event. Actually, the chronicler in 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 32, refers to Keturah as Abraham's concubine. Keturah's and Hagar's children, and we see this here, uh, they become the fathers of clans and nations, Arab clans and nations who come up later in the Old Testament story and sometimes harass Isaac's descendants, the Israelites. Uh, for instance, at one point, the Midianites oppress the Israelites. You find, a, you find out about that in the book of Judges. So Abraham sires other children with his concubines who become the leaders of clans who in the future will harass Isaac's descendants. Why not mention Keturah until now? I remember when I first read this years ago, I was like, what? Where did she come from? What, what is going on here? Feeling a little bit scandalized. What are you talking? What happened, Abraham? You didn't learn from Hagar, from the situation with Hagar? What, who is Keturah? Um, I think the easiest way to explain why Keturah shows up right here uh, at the end uh, is because she's, remember, the Bible is more than a historical narrative. The Bible is always trying to give you the spiritual perspective on what's going on with humanity. Uh, so because of that, the focus of Abraham's life is God's promise to him as that plays out in Isaac. Isaac is the child of God's promise and faithfulness to Abraham. All the other kids were Abraham's and Sarah's idea. But Isaac is the child of the promise. And so the focus on Abraham and Sarah and Isaac is what the author of Genesis is trying to do so that the first, the first hearers of Genesis, remember, the first hearers of the book of Genesis were Isaac's descendants, the Israelites. And their story was connected with Isaac. So that's why she's mentioned, but only at the very end of the accounts of Abraham. I want to talk just a little bit about this whole polygamy thing in the Old Testament. Like I said earlier, it was an established institution in the ancient world. And apparently, as you read the Old Testament, it seems that God tolerated it. I'm going to emphasize the word tolerate, okay? Because it was never God's design. Read Genesis chapter 2. Read the one man and one woman design of marriage. Read how that concept, that paradigm for marriage is reinforced throughout the Old Testament, especially in the wisdom literature, in the Song of Songs, in the Proverbs. Polygamy was instituted by fallen humanity. Read about Cain's line and Lamech in Genesis chapter 4. God didn't design it. And actually, every time you see polygamy persist in the Bible, conflict always follows. There's always some kind of a conflict or complication or disaster. You just, all you have to do is keep reading Genesis and you'll see that. Actually, one scholar who wrote a really great book on Genesis, Derek Kidner, this is how he describes polygamy. Um, actually, I better read it from my own notes. He said, he wrote, polygamy was the symptom of an unbalanced view of marriage, which regards it as an institution in which the wife's ultimate purpose is the production of children. Where God had created the woman first and foremost for partnership, 
Society made her, in effect, a means to an end, even if a noble end. It was admittedly a view which the wives seemed to have shared also. Remember, Hagar was originally Sarah's idea. Go back to Genesis chapter 16, not Abraham's idea. Kidner went on to say, it was admittedly a view which the wives seemed to have shared and an arrangement which God did not rebuke, but its cost in human relationships could be very high. So polygamy seems to be always tolerated, but never blessed. And I think this is just more evidence of the Bible's authenticity. Uh, people don't write their history by showing uh, their, their forefathers' biggest mistakes and most glaring errors. That's typically not how ancient history was written. And here you have the Israelites being extremely honest about the father of their nation. The Bible has no, I'm going to challenge you with this, the Bible has no blind spots when it talks about the lives of, of its foremost characters, of its primary people. Check it out. That the father of all believers was an imperfect man in all of his relationships and in his customs highlights the Christian doctrines of original sin, of total depravity. And if you're wondering what those are, they're summed up really well in, in the Westminster Larger Catechism where it says no man, or woman for that matter, no one is able either of himself or by any grace received in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but doth daily break them in thought, word, and deed. And the recent scholar Michael Horton summarizes this tension really well uh, when he says, Our fall was complete. Every area of human life was affected. And nothing created by God was left untouched. Consequently, uh, the stain of sin corrupts us physically, emotionally, psychologically, mentally, morally, and spiritually. That doesn't mean, of course, that we're all brute savages who always carry out every possible evil deed. It does mean that there is no island of purity from which we might mount a campaign to save ourselves. No part of us can rescue or heal the rest of us. So the Israelites, in considering the father of their nation, had to learn throughout their history to consider their past, to regard their past with honesty, with their eyes open. Historical honesty is so important. It's important for you, for your own personal life history, for your family's history, for your society's history, for the church's history. Historical honesty, it, it can give birth to a refreshing humility. You can't, I don't think you can be a humble person, and the Bible praises humility. It doesn't praise pride. It praises humility. And I think a great way to nurture humility is to be honest about the past. I think viewing the past properly uh, can help us to be humble as we look at present things. As we look at what's going on in our lives now, the community, in our world, and honesty about the past gives us a chance to be humble about what's happening right now. Look, if, if the great people of the past were complicated 
and broken themselves. Let's just think of a few. Think of America's founding fathers, right? While they were fighting for freedom, some of them still owned slaves. Think of the great reformer, the Christian reformer, Martin Luther, uh, and how we still, we, we are still indebted to him and are blessed by his teaching and his theology and his writings and even some of his hymns. We sang one of his, the second song we sang today was a Martin Luther hymn. And yet Martin Luther, if you look into his life over the years, developed an increasingly uh, troubling anti-Semitism. And the seeds of his thoughts about the Jews, the seeds developed into very dangerous ideas that produced horrific crimes many hundreds of years later. Think of Martin Luther King Jr. in our own culture and how our documents have now in recent years been revealed about his own weaknesses. If, if the greats of our past were complicated, broken people, despite the wonderful things they accomplished, that things that we still benefit from today, if they were broken people, if there was hypocrisy even in their lives, shouldn't we think of ourselves with humility? Shouldn't we regard ourselves in a sober way? As the Apostle Paul said in his letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 12, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Now, let me clarify. We must be discerning, right? We must practice discernment and uh, we, we must practice discretion in our dealings with people. Right? In your business dealings, in your relationships uh, with people of the opposite sex, in your marriages, in how you parent, uh, where you work, where you go to school, we have to be careful in all of our relationships. But we can't be condemning. That's the issue. When the Bible says don't judge, what, what, the Bible doesn't mean don't be discerning. Uh, don't practice discretion in your relationships and in all that you do. The Bible is saying don't be condemning. Don't play the judge when only God deserves to be the judge. We don't want spirits of condemnation, spirits of discernment and discretion, but always sober and humble about ourselves. The psalmist David put it perfectly at the end of Psalm 139. He had been saying how he hates the wicked people who hate his God. And, but then at the end of saying that, he says, Search me, O God. And know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. See, that's, that's anger in check. That's, that's practicing discernment and discretion when you're livid about what you, see going, what you see going on in the world. You say, God, I can't stand what's happening all around me. It troubles me deeply, but, but God, search my heart. Help me to see if there's something wrong and hypocritical and dysfunctional and decrepit and wicked within my thoughts. Let's start there, Lord. So think of yourself with humility and think of other people with patience. Be humble about yourself and be patient with other people. Because we all have, we all have moral blind spots. Think about Jonathan Snack earlier when he walked up and started talking to the kids with blinders on his eyes and how he couldn't see them clearly. We all have moral blind spots. What is permissible to you may actually be problematic to somebody else. 
You ever considered that? Something that may not bother you may deeply offend another person? Look, we object. We object to the ancient culture's toleration of polygamy. And we should object to it. It should creep us out and bother us. But doesn't our culture tolerate other systemic moral failures? Just just for an example, uh, we tend to not have the problem as a culture of marrying too many people at the same time. Granted, we do tend to have a problem with not marrying anybody, but still demanding that we have physical intimacy, that we have emotional intimacy, and that we continue to have children and prolong, prolong our family line without ever committing to anybody. You judge Abraham for having all these wives. At least he committed himself to them and they were taken care of and they were protected. We're used to just taking from people emotionally and physically whatever we want in this culture, but not committing to them. What are future generations going to say about the American culture's blind spots right now? What are future Christians going to say about American Christianity's blind spots right now? What are your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren going to think about your blind spots right now? And how the things you didn't see that were dysfunctional from your family of origin, you've taken them and you've brought them into your relationships now. You've brought, this is how you deal with the people you work with. You've just taken those things that you didn't see, that your parents didn't see, and now you're using them in your current marriage. What are people going to say about your blind spots? It's easy to look into the past and go, those wicked people, those wacky backwards people, and not look at ourselves and say, ah, we've got some issues. It'll be easy for people in 100 years to see the issues that we can't see right now. I'll bring up another recent musical, The Greatest Showman. It's a movie, but it's really a musical. See, who has seen The Greatest Showman? Okay, a decent number of people, yeah. Uh, remarkable, remarkable musical. Really good story, really interesting thing. I want to be really careful here because I actually, I actually uh, have a lot of positive things to say about The Greatest Showman, artistically, musically, theatrically. I actually think it presents some really redeeming themes like a man tempted by success uh, still decides to be faithful to, to his spouse and to his children. I think that's beautiful. Uh, to see social outcasts find purpose and identity in their lives is a beautiful theme. There is something, though, that I think, I think the movie does. I don't know if it's intentional. It might be. But I think there's something in the movie, in, in the most famous of its songs, that really highlights an Ameri- a blind spot, a cultural blind spot of America today. And it's in the words, I'm not scared to be seen. I make no apologies. This is me. You know, if you just isolate those words and take them out and put them into a biblical context, there's never, every time that mentality comes up in the Bible, it always results in disaster. (laughs) When, When we say, hey, Here I am, as I am, I apologize for nothing. You have to see things my way. That it never goes well for for anybody. And I think I think that is a that is a perfect synopsis of a blind spot within our own culture. Look, honesty 
without humility is not progress. Jesus said to people while he was teaching, why do you judge one another? Why do you, st- why do you sit in judgment on each other when you all have something that you have to deal with? Jesus said, nobody should be saying, I've got nothing to worry about. You need to accept me as I am. Actually, Jesus said, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Jesus is saying, if you want to help somebody, if you want to see clearly, you have to deal with your own culpability. If you want to be helpful to somebody else, if you want to share wisdom, with somebody else, you have to remove the blinders, the moral blinders off your eyes so that you can see clearly. And once you deal with your own hypocrisy and once you see yourself clearly, now you're in a position to help somebody else. But never assume that you have nothing within yourself to be concerned about. If there's nothing in your past or in your present for which you don't have remorse or concern, You're blind, Jesus said. You're blind and you don't see clearly. But God's not blind. God sees everything. And when Jesus showed up, when the Son of God showed up and took on humanity, just like you and me, scrapes and bruises and all, he saw everything clearly. He saw even into people's hearts. He knew what they were thinking. He could see so clearly. And the reason I still have hope despite my horrible record, you think Abraham is bad? You should look into my mind. You should play the videotape of my life, every word, thought, and deed, and Abraham looks like like nothing. That's why the Apostle Paul was able to say he was the chief of sinners. Everyone should say, I'm the biggest sinner I know because I'm the only person, my heart is the the only heart that's revealed to me. You know, Um, and the reason I'm hopeful, friends, is because God, despite the fact that he sees everything about me, hasn't rejected me. Yeah, we have to be honest about the past. We have to be humble about the present. But the Bible tells us we can have full hope and assurance, solid assurance in our future, because despite the fact that we're a wreck, God hasn't rejected us. In Romans 5.8, Paul said, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to clean clean up our act. Jesus will love you as you are. He will love you as you are, but he will love you too much to leave you as you are. Abraham needed faith. We call Abraham the man of faith, not because he was exemplary, we call Abraham the man of faith because Abraham, at least in, in, in recorded biblical history, is the first person to say, I believe that God's word is more important than my own righteousness. Abra- Abraham is the man of faith because Abraham somehow realized that his own record couldn't save him. That he had no reason to boast before his creator. And in the end, we are told, despite his sins, despite the messes he made out of his life at times and the messes he made out of the people around him and their lives, it says that he was gathered to his people. And that's a significant expression. Gathered to his people, that, that is proof of the a belief of the immortality of the soul. And when you see people die in faith, 
in the Bible, they're gathered to their people. Uh, and the sense there is that their life is not over, but it continues. That the blessing of God continues beyond this mortal life. And that's the hope of Christianity. That because Jesus died for our sin, despite our sin, he died for our sin and he rose from the dead. We have hope of being gathered to our people. Which ultimately means we're gathered to Christ. We're gathered to all the faithful that belong to Jesus from Abraham and Sarah on up until the present. So you can say in faith, when you follow this Jesus who died for you when you were still a sinner, we can say in faith, I'm not scared to be seen because when God looks at me, he sees a new creation. I'm not scared to be seen, not because of anything in me that I'm trying to convince you is worth your while. I'm not scared to be seen because God sees me. God sees me for who I am. He still loves me. And actually, when God looks at me, he sees the perfection of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be in Christ. That Christ's perfection and Christ's beauty is yours. That you're robed in what he has and what he offers. So we don't need to fear what people see in us and what people think of us despite our past. Because God looks at us differently now through the blood and resurrection of his son. As we sang in Martin Luther's hymn, Though great our sins and sore our woes, His grace much more aboundeth. So the grace of God covers the sins of our past and our present and even our future. And we can be honest about our past, all of it, our family's past, our political past, our social past. We can be honest about all of it in hopes that we will be humble about what's going on today and be humble ourselves and to be hopeful for our future where we will be gathered to be with Christ despite our weakness. So I want to encourage you to thank God for his grace despite your many sins and to ask him to show you your hidden sins, the things you can't see. Ask him to help you to remove the moral blinders so that you can see things clearly and then become patient with other people while they're still discovering their own. All right, let's pray. Father, what, what can we say? What can we say about Abraham, the man of faith? Uh, we want to, in honesty, uh, confess that he was as broken as we are. We want to profess and declare that as your grace covered him, your grace covers us. We thank you for the gift of faith to trust you when you say that if we confess our sin, you are faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us. Uh, Father, I pray that you would cultivate in this church honesty and humility and hope. Amen.